when I first became a Christian, I was very, very zealous for the gospel, perhaps too zealous. I remember using MSN Messenger. Remember that? Only a few people? No? MSN Messenger was how the cool kids texted in the early 2000s. Um, using MSN Messenger to evangelize my friend, and, uh, and, and he was just super annoyed by it, and, and he said, look, man, this is too much. You're, you're, yeah. Granted, he got saved, okay, a couple months later. So after he got saved, I said, hey, was it too much? He said, yeah, it was too much. I'm like, well, it worked, didn't it? So you going to argue with results? Come on. So I got that a lot, though. People would say, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much, you're too in your face, you're too hardcore, whatever. But I was just so amazed by Jesus and I couldn't believe the lies that I had believed about him all my life. You know, like the popular entertainment industry lies about Jesus and what they told me about Jesus. When I actually read the Bible, I determined, wow, it's like the opposite. It's just not true. Like, for example, you know, like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? I grew up watching The Simpsons, and Ned Flanders was the Christian guy on, on the show with Reverend Lovejoy and so forth. But he was like, you know, the hardcore Christian. It was Ned Flanders. So when I saw Ned Flanders, I thought, well, that's like Jesus. Jesus is like Ned Flanders. Or like uh, South Park, the South Park depiction of Jesus, where he's just kind of like the the devil's like buddy or whatever and he's kind of like oh just be nice just be nice and everybody makes fun of Jesus and he's like whatever it's all good I'm Jesus you know these kind of lies I had belief so I thought Jesus was a limp-wristed pencil-necked passive weakling because of what I was being uh, told about him when I read the Bible he was strong firm, filled with wisdom, that he is God. And he died to save me. Not only that, but he rose from the dead. And, and so I, I had to make it my personal mission then to go about to dispel the South Park Jesus, to refute Ned Flanders Jesus, that all of my friends, including myself, had believed. And so, yeah, they didn't much like that. I presented the facts and to my shock, I couldn't believe, not, not that they just said, well, whatever, but the animosity that it created. It wasn't just like, hey, guys, let me show you the real Jesus. And they said, I don't, I, you know what, I don't care to, to know that. Or it wasn't like, okay, let me see. Okay, thanks, whatever. No, they got like angry with me. People went crazy, and I couldn't understand why they wouldn't want to know about the true Jesus. Why would you want to hold on to the South Park Simpsons Jesus in your mind when it's a lie? It's almost like they wanted Jesus to be like Ned Flanders. It, it's almost as if they were the mob screaming, give us Ned Flanders, <laughs> you know? Pilate is saying, who do you want, Ned Flanders or Jesus? Give us Ned. Crucify him. I learned the hard way that some people just hate God for who he is. God's prophets, as we know if we read through the Bible, we'll see his prophets are rejected in every generation. But Christ is still Lord and he's still on the throne. 
And this morning we're going to go through a story that illustrates that powerfully. It's about a, a man named Stephen. Stephen at the time was a very young, ambitious guy. He loved God. He was on fire for the Lord. He had a passion for the Lord. He was a young man, you know, that the Bible says was, literally, the Bible says this about him. He was full of grace and power. He went about doing great things, wonders and signs. Acts 6, 8 says he was full of grace and power. Look, it literally says that. And Stephen, full of grace and power. Now you might think, why are you repeating that? I heard you the first time. This is an extraordinary thing to say about a person because Jesus in the Bible is described as being full of grace and truth. So if there was ever a poster boy for what it meant to be on fire for Jesus, it's Stephen. Because the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, imagine that. The Spirit was so inspired about Stephen that he he told us he was full of grace and power. Holy Spirit, of course, but it's an extraordinary thing to say about a person that's not Jesus. People were healed of their chronic diseases. The good news was preached to the poor, and really, what was there not to like about Stephen? Very likable guy. When he's around, you're inspired. You can feel his passion. There's healing. Stuff's happening. Bold, courageous, graceful. Stephen, the way the Bible paints him, is, could fit the script for like a superhero. But for all there is to love about Stephen, I'm sure he would be the first one to stop you and say, look, it's not about me. There's nothing good in me. If there is anything good in me, it's the Lord Jesus who transformed me. And he was loved by the people, and the Holy Spirit put tremendous wisdom in him. However, there was a synagogue called the Freedmen who couldn't stand Stephen. Honestly, you read through the story. When you go home, read through it all. I won't be able to read word for word the whole thing. But read through the whole thing on your own, and, you'll, and, and just look at the parallels between Stephen's, this story of Stephen, and the story of Jesus. And you'll see Point by point, it's literally almost the same. So he goes about healing, preaching. People loved him. Wow. Then there's a synagogue that doesn't. Does that sound familiar? There's some religious leaders who don't like that. So they hated him, and they didn't just want to censor him. They wanted him dead. So they called together some of their friends, and they said, okay, let's not just, let's not kill, let's not, lead with the with that right let's just not go kill him let's at least maybe we can embarrass him a little bit and that that might be enough so they stirred up some of their friends and they began to dispute with Stephen in public and uh, lately there's been much discussion in the last year I think a year ago a year ago the first Sunday of March was our last service indoors until whenever. And since then, there's been a lot of discussion about conspiracy theories. Now look, I'm a sucker for a good conspiracy theory, okay? Um, I like to hear about conspiracy theories. I think they're interesting, but we need to be discerning about these things because the tendency as as of late is to swing to the two opposite extremes. Either we write off all conspiracy theories as crazy, 
or we believe every single conspiracy theory we hear. And both approaches are wrong and dangerous. Don't think of the term conspiracy theory as slander. Okay, first of all, that's the first thing. If you hear someone say that's a conspiracy theory, don't think that's necessarily a bad thing or write it off as if it can't be true. Conspiracies are real. They exist. There are people who will conspire against you. There are groups that will conspire to wrong others. It's incredibly naive and intellectually lazy to label anyone conspiracy theorist. Psalm 2 literally tells us that the governments of the world are conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. Now imagine that. Human beings conspiring against God. If there was ever a waste of time and effort, it would be humans conspiring against God himself. Psalm 2 tells us how God responds to human governments, human uh, uh, tribes of people, human groups conspiring against him. This is what it says in Psalm 2 and verse 4. God's response to their conspiracy. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's funny for him. When humans conspire against God and his anointed, he laughs. It's a joke. It's funny because it's vain. It would be like an ant coming against the tank and conspiring against the tank or a nuclear warhead. If you could anthropomorphize a tank or a nuclear warhead, it would laugh at the ant. It would laugh at you if you tried to conspire against it. And God is infinitely more powerful than a nuclear warhead. And so when men and women try to conspire against him, he laughs because it's funny. It's, it's, it's a vain thing. It's a comedy show for God. But notice, there's a real conspiracy at work. It's an actual conspiracy. It's just funny. And to deny the conspiracies, to deny Psalm chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, Stephen was conspired against. People got together. They conspired against him. They went to great lengths to see that Stephen would be hushed up. Their first order of business was to dispute with him. Perhaps they could make him look foolish publicly, and that would embarrass him, and he would not come back. But the more they tried, the more foolish they actually appeared, and, and to their humiliation, they actually couldn't withstand the wisdom and spirit with, with which Stephen was speaking. They were refuted boldly on every point of dispute, and they were left speechless. The Holy Spirit he gives us the words we need to say when we need to say them. And what I've learned in my years as a Christian is that the truth of Christ is ironclad. If you'll just stick to the truth of Jesus and not go off on rabbit trails, it's ironclad, which means it cannot be refuted. If you know the Lord and learn of him, there's no refutation to it. I've been in countless discussions with people, and, and the more I got to know Jesus, the shorter those encounters become. Why? Because people either get infuriated that the Christian worldview so easily dismantled theirs, 
When people encounter the real truth of Christ, the sand that they built their life on, it just gives away very, very easily. And it infuriates them. Like, how did this Jesus thing, that's a joke, I thought was a joke, how did, it, how did Ned Flanders just ruin my worldview? Because it was never Ned Flanders. Or, another thing happens, people, they stand amazed and they go, whoa, I've never heard of this Jesus before. I've heard of other Jesuses, but not this one. This one's different. This one has power. This one holds authority. And they want to know more, and they're amazed by it. In which case, the conversation actually isn't short. It gets longer. But the first one, it's short. They just get mad. Blah, they don't want to hear it. So obviously, trying to dismantle Stephen's message through public discourse was not a, a good um, plan for these people. He easily refuted them, embarrassed them. Their conspiracy was put to the dust. So it had to go up a notch. The conspiracy against Stephen moved to the next phase. Stephen's responses caused their blood pressure to skyrocket. They became very, very angry. Remember when Jesus did similar things? They would come to question him and he would refute them very easily. And then they would get really angry. Same thing happening here. They were infuriated. They were humiliated in front of everyone. And so they secretly instigated, secretly, right? Just like Jesus, right? They secretly instigated men to falsely accuse Stephen of the same crime that got Jesus crucified. What was the crime? Do you remember? Blasphemy. They don't have a new playbook. They went about the people and they whispered and they murmured and they said, you know, we've heard this Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Guys, like you tried that with Jesus and like same thing. A lot of times when people slander, when they can't confound the truth rather, they, they resort to slander. They can't refute the truth so they have to slander. That's the playbook. And is this ever not the case today? The truth has become the greatest heresy. You notice that? Truth has become heresy in our culture. We live in a weird time. It's like a bizarro world. The more and more time passes by, the weirder and weirder things get. Stephen was accused of blasphemy. I mean, what a ridiculous accusation. It w what Stephen was saying was literally the opposite of blasphemy. But yet that was the accusation. How, how does that hold any weight? How does that hold any water? When you live in a weird, weird world, you never know what's going to hold water. I've been accused of all sorts of things for what I've said. You hold to a Christian worldview that says there's only one race of man. You're a racist. I've literally been called a racist because I said, guys, there's only one race. God made us of one blood. And from, and from that one blood, many nations, he spread abroad the earth. Oh, you're a racist. What? No, literally. I've been called a racist because I've suggested that the human family came from one blood. That's literally the opposite of racism. Literally, it's the opposite. If you say you believe children should have a mom and a dad and that homosexual adoption is not good for 
kids, you get accused of many things. You get accused of hating homosexuals, and you get accused of hating children. That's, uh, that's the opposite of what I said, though. But this is how persecution works, okay? We need to understand, Christian persecution doesn't come with a noble accusation. You're, you're going to be persecuted for noble things. It's always going to be veiled in a lie. It's always going to be veiled in slander. Stephen was persecuted for blasphemy, but he never blasphemed. We will not be persecuted for preaching the gospel. We'll be persecuted for spreading hate, for homophobia, for transphobia, for racism, despite the fact we have spread none of those things. The reality is you will be persecuted for spreading the gospel, but that's not what the accusation will come forth as. They're not going to say, he, he was preaching the Bible. They'll say, he was preaching hate. He's transphobic. She's homophobic. When really, you're just preaching the Bible. But they'll never say it was just the Bible. It will always be a slanderous accusation that is literally untrue. In our culture, lies have become truth, and truth has become hatred. Now, you thought I was going to say lies, but that's not what's happened. The truth has become hatred. Well, they've always, people who don't know the Lord, have hated the truth. We know that. So it should be no surprise to us, then, that the truth would be labeled as hate. Because they hate it. <laughs> they hate it. And only God can transform the heart to love what was previously hated. And so with lying lips, they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and, and they grabbed Stephen by force and they brought him before the religious council. Where have we seen that before? So when they get before the council, false witnesses arrive, arose. Sorry, I guess they arrived too before they arose. But um, false witnesses arose. Where have we seen that before? Are you making the connections here? Acts chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. And they set up false witnesses who said, they set them up, another conspiracy. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's, it's like they copied and pasted what they said to Jesus. The conspiracy against Stephen had just escalated to a place I'm not sure even he expected. And notice the speed with which it happened. It was quick. One second, he's just having a discussion, right? The next thing he knows, he's being thrust before the council with Hate and false accusations being hurled at him. Like, this is tremendous injustice happening here, and it's infuriating. And, like, how can these people sleep at night? They know they're lying, but they're doing it anyways. But while, you know, your heart might be raging and, and your blood is boiling at the injustice of this, the scene takes a drastic turn. As the lies continued to flow towards Stephen from the witnesses that were set up, they look and Stephen's face begins to glisten and shine like that of an angel. 
all the lies, all the injustice happening, and Stephen was just standing there with a bright face. (laughs) He was at perfect peace. The Holy Spirit was manifesting himself through Stephen and adding more condemnation upon the the accusers. He was blessed in that moment because he found himself in the same shoes as Jesus. Brought before the same council, facing the same false accusations and the same penalty. But, of course, the high priest, being a fair man, heard the accusations, and then he just simply asks him in verse 1 of chapter 7, are these things so? Is this true, Stephen? Well, like music to Stephen's ears, he goes, ah, thank you for that question, because now I get to preach the gospel. (laughs) He didn't care about defending himself. He decided to take the opportunity to preach the gospel. And Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, reminds the people of God there, of Israel, of their history with God. And this is a very long sort of sermon uh, uh, Stephen gives. And I'm going to try to uh, paraphrase it here as best as I can. Sum it up for you. So, he tells them that the glory of God appeared to Abraham and commanded Abraham to leave his home and his family to go to a land he would show him. So Abraham, he was a man of faith, virtuous faith. He obeys God, despite the fact he really doesn't know where he's going. Okay, He, he doesn't know. He, he, he just went. And when Abraham's father had died, God sent him to the land of Israel. Stephen tells them, God sent Abraham to where we are now. Yet, he didn't give him an inheritance land. He just sent him to the land and said, just live here, but no inheritance was given to him yet, not even a foot, he said. But he promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring, even though Abraham had no child at the time. So, God warned Abraham. He said, listen, your, your offspring will um, be sent to a foreign land they don't possess, and while in that land, they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. But God says, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge that nation. I'm going to deliver your people back to this land where they will worship me freely. So God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham had a son, supernaturally, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Thus, the 12 tribes of Israel were born. The sons of Jacob, they had a dispute with their brother Joseph. They saw that. Their father loved Joseph more than them. And so they got angry. They were jealous. And at an opportune time, they sold him as a slave to Egypt. Now, they thought, good. We're done with our brother. He's gone. This dreamer. Remember, he had a bunch of dreams that everyone would bow down before him. So they're like, get rid of him. They did. We thought, they thought, good. He's gone. They told their father, look, sorry about your favorite son. A lion ate him. Here's his robe. You know, tough luck. And they didn't talk to each other about it again. It was like, we're done with that. We're good. But Joseph, while he was in Egypt, found favor with God, and he was eventually exalted by Pharaoh to oversee the whole land of Egypt. Through much suffering, Joseph persevered, and God exalted him to the highest position in the richest nation. If that's not an underdog story, then I don't know what is. So there came a famine through the region, and the brothers of Joseph were hungry. And they 
There's no food here, but we heard there's food in Egypt. So their father, Jacob, says, go to Egypt, get some food so that we might live and not die. And so their first visit to Egypt, the brothers, they didn't recognize Joseph, right? He had a shaved head. He was in his Egyptian garb. He was older, probably a lot more muscular than them because he had food to eat. So they didn't recognize it was Joseph, but Joseph recognized it was them. Been many years. He had an Egyptian name, but he saw them and he knew, hey, these are my brothers and they're starving. He says, you know what? Before I give you anything, you have a father, don't you? Yeah, go get him. Bring him back. I want to I meet him. When I meet him, then we, can have, then, then we can give you some stuff. Here's a little bit of provision for the way, but until I meet him, you know, no deal. So on their visit, Joseph, it was too much for him. He made himself known to his brothers and his father, and, and, and he embraced them. Although they hated him, although they rejected him and sold him into slavery, Joseph embraces them because he recognized what God purposed for, or, or what they purposed for evil, God purposed for good, that he might save them so they might be preserved and not die. So Jacob and his whole family, they lived in Egypt until the day of their death where they were buried in the tomb that Abraham had bought. So Joseph, his father and brothers died, but the offspring continued to increase. And Israel increased in the land, and Egypt was full of Abraham's descendants. Just like God said, for 400 years they would be there. But soon a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph, who didn't care about Joseph, and he saw the Israelites growing, and he said, this is, a bad, this is bad political policy. These Israelites are going to out... Uh, what's the word? Breed us and take us over. And so he says, okay, whenever a male of the Israelites is born, I'm decreeing they be thrown in the Nile. Kill the male babies so that they'll stop. The throne will be safe. So God protected one young infant boy named Moses. It says he was beautiful in God's sight. And ironically, it was Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him and raised him. Moses grew up in the royal house. He was instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians. And when he was 40 years old, he saw his brethren, some Hebrews, fighting with each other. And he rose up and, or sorry, he saw an Egyptian fighting with the Hebrew, rather. And he rose up and he struck the Egyptian and he killed the Egyptian. Didn't mean to kill him, but he did. He thought his brothers would understand that, hey, guys, maybe God's saving you by me, right? Like, I killed the Egyptian, but, you know, we're cool, right? No, no, no. They saw him. Moses, man, you grew up in luxury. You grew up in the, in the royal house. Who made you a judge over us? Does that sound familiar? Man, you can't judge me. Who made you a judge? When, Mer when Moses heard that his people were like not down with him, he fled to Midian because he knew soon he would be caught in killing an Egyptian. Even if you're the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, man, 
death sentence. So he ran away to Egypt. He, was, he exiled himself. And while there, God appeared to him in a burning bush. And he was amazed by the thing. And he's like, what is this all about? And the voice of God spoke to him and said, go back to Egypt and deliver my people. So this Moses, he says, whom Israel rejected, God sent back and used him to deliver them out of the evil Pharaoh's hand. Moses, the same one who said, Acts 7.37 says, Moses said, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This was the Moses whom you received the law on Mount Sinai, but Israel rejected and refused to obey him and they thrust him aside and in their crooked hearts they made idols and they said, let us go back to Egypt. They rejected Moses and they rejected God. They made a golden calf. They worshipped it. They offered sacrifice to their abomination and they rejoiced in their error. Stephen tells them, Moses died. Joshua entered the promised land with God's help. And so it went on until the days of David, who found favor in God's sight, asked to build the temple. God said, no, I reject you, David. Your son Solomon will do that. And so he did. And it tells us here in Acts 7, 49... Uh, let me just jump there, Acts 7, 49. Sorry, these pages are... There we go. It says, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Um, he says in verse 51, this is Stephen speaking, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And with that, Stephen's long speech is over. So he gives them this long history, shortened version of the long history from Abraham to Jesus and he uses it as an illustration to say, hey guys, which one of the prophets that you believe did your ancestors not persecute? Was there one? No, you're a stiff-necked people. You killed those beforehand. And you killed the righteous one. And you murdered him. You're just like, like father, like son. <laughs> you're just like your ancestors. Do you not see it? Now, when the council heard how he rebuked them so fiercely, he gave them their whole history and said, you're, in the, you're doing the same thing they did. The same things you preach, the same things you... You know, these stories are, are about Israel and how we're supposed to love the Lord and not reject the Lord. You're doing the same thing. Don't you see, you stiff-necked people? Hard rebuke. They became enraged. But Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He looks into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. Imagine seeing And he says in verse 56, 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the hand of God. The same thing 
Jesus told the council that he would be at the right hand of God in glory. Stephen says, behold, I see it. I see it. And when they heard these words, their hatred just spilled over because these were the same words that Jesus spoke at his own trial when he told the council he would sit at the right hand of God. And so they took Stephen and they cast him outside the city and they picked up stones and they just, in rage, began hurling them at Stephen until he died. And as they pummeled him with heavy stones, Stephen called out for Jesus to receive his spirit. Then falling to his knees, the last ounce of strength he had, he said these words in verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. To his final breath, Stephen was faithful to his Lord. And the last words off his lips were those of his Lord. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not hold this sin against them. And the conspiracy to shut Stephen up ended with him dead, covered in stones, pummeled. This is why the truth is so essential. We see here how quickly a simple disagreement escalated into murder at the hands of an angry mob. If you don't think that the same devil that inspired that isn't, in our day, also inspiring hate for the truth and embracing of lies, then you're blind. Although God's prophets are constantly persecuted and conspired against by the world, Stephen looked and he saw, he's still on the throne, isn't he? Even in the midst of his persecution Stephen looked and he goes I see him on the throne he's still in charge and as people of God we must walk in those steps of Stephen uncompromising with the truth never giving even an inch to the lies he never gave even an inch he never conceded even a millimeter to the lies he stood on the truth of Christ and we need to too the story ends with a young man named Saul, who we'll pick up in the coming weeks, standing, and it says he approved of Stephen's execution. And after Stephen died, Saul, he went from house to house, persecuting believers, arresting them, both men and women, throwing them in prison because they believed in Jesus. And the story ends there. And we'll pick up Saul's situation um, in a couple weeks because the story kind of flips to a different scene. But we'll pick up Saul in a couple weeks, what's happening with him. So the story of Stephen's execution reveals a fundamental truth about history, our history. God constantly comes to us in mercy and grace. He sends prophets and preachers to turn us back, to hear his word, to do his will. But people constantly reject him and they persecute his chosen people who come in love and truth. Stephen was not a terrorist. He was not coming to hurt anybody. He came with the words of God, healings and stuff. What's not to like about him? God is so patient with us that Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and dies for us, the very people who rejected him. In the midst of a people who constantly for thousands of years rejected the true and living God, that's when Jesus enters the scene. It's not like he was waiting for them to like start loving him. He came 
while they hated, while we hated. He did that so that our heinous sins might be forgiven. And so we see the heart of God in Stephen as he stands up before his accusers and he pleads with them, don't make the same mistakes of your fathers. Don't reject the living God. He sent you the ultimate gift in Jesus. Don't reject him. And the narrative is the same for us today, isn't it? We live in the midst of a religious culture exchange the living God for idols made of paper currency or whatever our money's made of, polymer stuff. Uh, we've exchanged it for sensual lust, illusions of power, popularity, beauty, which are impossible to achieve without Photoshop. Okay, seriously. I'm into the fitness industry. I, I, I follow some bodybuilders on social media, and it's just a fact you can't look like that in real life. You can't. I met Ronnie Coleman in real life at the height of his career. He did not look the way he does in magazines. Still big, very muscular man. But not like in the magazine, because it's fake. <laughs> it's not real. Even with steroids, it's not real. It's an illusion. Money is an illusion, especially now. What is it? It's, it's nothing. We live in a culture that, has only, uh, that can only be characterized as loving lies. Just, just make it seem real, and that's enough for me. And they hate the truth, because the truth comes against the lies and says, it's not real. It's objectively fake. No, no, no. You're ruining my delusion. <laughs> Don't ruin my delusion. And that's not loving. My delusion makes me feel happy. And the truth doesn't care about that. The truth is the truth. And Jesus said the truth will set you free, not the lie. You think the lie is making you happy. You think the lie is making you fulfilled. But you're not realizing it's destroying you. And when the truth comes against that, you're resistant, not realizing that thing is coming to liberate you, to make you free. Our culture is so in love with lies that to come against the lies is to, is to position yourself as a terrorist to them, a hater of humanity, a bigot who needs to be silenced. But remember, they first wanted to silence Stephen, but it didn't end with a simple silence. It ended with him dead. So don't make the same mistake of exchanging the living God for powerless, lifeless idols. Because God wins. He, he's already won. And the story of Stephen's martyrdom is one that shows us that even in death, there's tremendous victory. Stephen, even as he was being stoned, it's amazing to hear what he says. It's almost as if he was at peace. He was happy. Oh, there's my Lord. Get hit with stones. I see him. Lord, forgive them. Like, what? What's going on with this guy? Even to his death, he was a martyr, which means witness. So, although there is persecution, his people are rejected, his servants are rejected by a world that hates him, we can learn from Stephen, he's still on the throne. He's still on the throne. And nothing can remove him from that. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your testimony through your servant Stephen. I pray, Lord, that you would you would fill us with that same Holy Spirit, that you would, um, um, in our generation, that we would be the Stevens who, who are so on fire for you um, that even in persecution, we're s- still so gracious. Uh, Stephen did rebuke them harshly. He did not silence the word of God. He did not sugarcoat the word of God. He did not... Um, you know, he was not seeking to be a seeker sensitive in any way. However, he was still very full of love, even in persecution. Uh, Lord, help us be, be like that, to be people who are uncompromising with the truth, but also uncompromising, uncompromisingly gracious and kind and loving, even to those who slander us, even to those who are trying to make a, a, a public mockery of us and of you. Lord, uh, give us that vision he had of you on the throne. That is what will sustain anybody through any hardship. If we can see you on that throne as he did and and be confident that you are alive, enthroned forever, it doesn't matter who comes against us as long as we have that confidence. So instill that in our hearts and take these weak vessels and make them strong for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. We need uh, his inspiration. We need his help. So.